thanks Justin for texting me right when we start. Jerk. Oh, he texted both of us. And it's not yeah. even anything fun. It's just a... Uh, Another train video? It, it's a Simpsons April Fool's clip. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess it's your show, Justin. You just go ahead. <laughs> now, now he's going to have this timestamp, so he'll just call us. Right, right. He knows when, he knows when we record. Yep. Um, Although we're starting a little late today, so Justin, if you uh, try this again, maybe try about 30 minutes earlier. There you go. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with decoders discover the wonder in the ordinary. both uh sort of spoken about how like we kind of talk to ourselves right like a little bit yeah um when you're talking to yourself in your head how do you refer to yourself hmm i don't i guess i don't like uh speak to myself in the third person or in the second person you know pronoun way either it's almost like I'm just the audience and then I am formenting or form forming all of the uh, potential counterpositions to whatever my current thought process is. So it's like my mind is the uh, is the peanut gallery, you know, giving me a lot of feedback on whatever idea I have and then me being like, oh yeah. The gallery's probably right. That is a dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, when I was like laying in bed last night, um, so I've been trying to like sketch a bunch this year mm-hmm. just cause, uh, I haven't done that probably since like school and just trying to like, you know, get something down on paper every day. And I haven't sketched for the last few days. And so I was sitting there, I was like, man, you haven't like sketched anything out, but you did draw a bunch when you drew out those stencils. And then I said to myself, yeah, you're right. So I realized (laughs) I talk to myself in my head. I'm always you. Like, like (laughs) there's two yous. (laughs) (laughs) It's the two halves of you talking to each other, I guess then. Yeah. But, and then I was like, well, when else can I even imagine that I do this? Because it's hard to imagine how you think you talk to yourself or think to yourself. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, well, what about when I get something for lunch? I'm like, <laughs> then I say, what are we going to have today? And then <laughs> I'm like, oh, what about, you know, chicken Caesar salad? I'm like, okay, so you need this, you need this, you need this. 
So I, I refer to myself as we at the initial point, and then from there it uh, divides into two different yous that are going back and forth. <laughs> but never singular. It's never you never you never confident enough to say I need this. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably some psychology behind that. <laughs> you you have to you have to trick yourself into like being the people pleaser that you are to please yourself instead of just like owning your own wants and needs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I can I can empathize with that. I'm I'm the I'm the people pleaser guy too. So if you can uh in in any environment, if it can be arranged to my psyche such that I need to do something in order to make sure that these people like me, I'll do it. I'll do it every time. There's like, there's, I, that, that is going to be my first uh, reaction no matter what. So if you ever want to get me to do anything, that's the easiest way to manipulate me. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing because I also, uh, it's like a fine line between uh, people pleasing, but also uh, just not caring about other people, like <laughs> yeah. like in the immediate. <laughs> I mean, I want them all to like me, but I don't really give a fuck about them. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. <clears throat> I mean, I'd be upset if they didn't like me. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was very close to snapping on a climate scientist. <laughs> The other day. Um, yeah, so I don't know how to describe it without just getting into our topic. Yeah, let's just get into the topic. Cause, so today we're talking about the phenomenon of uh, these methane craters that have been exploding in the Arctic. First discovered back in 2014, and more and more of them just keep popping like... Uh, zits on a teenager's face and um so there was a nova documentary uh i think it debuted on february 2nd i think that's when i watched it is the first the one the first one in february and it was about uh centering on what is the cause of these methane craters that are popping up all over the place in the arctic and then um, that leads to a bigger conversation about permafrost and that leads to a bigger conversation about climate change and the warming pattern and, well, I guess we can't really call it permafrost anymore if it's not going to be permanently frozen. And so what happens <laughs> yeah. if the things that we thought were permanently frozen are no longer frozen and uh, what kind of cascading events happen as a result of that? And have we since this is sort of the uh, more cutting edge of discovering different types of carbon content that's being released into the atmosphere, have these types of figures been included in all of the tried and true uh, projections for climate outlook when we're doing the Paris Accord and all of those types of things to try to keep the world below two degrees Celsius increase? Hoping one and a half, but I think we've blown past that now. Um, and <laughs> like, uh, is the, is the permafrost melt and all this new stuff that's being calculated, has that even been included into those projections? And what does that say about the current projections being too conservative or, you know, 
uh, how are we looking at the future? So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. And that led us down quite a few rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like we've been hearing for a little while, too, about permafrost, like the concerns with the Arctic melting. It's it's it goes between permafrost or the melting ice caps. Mm -hmm. Um, I I didn't have time to look it up, but wasn't there some paper recently, too, that they're like, there's actually less water in the Arctic ice than previously thought? Yeah. Um, And um or and there's there was also a study about maybe the permafrost isn't as permanently frozen as we had thought because a lot of the sub layers of the permafrost have very high salt content so that water content of the permafrost stays thawed even if it gets well below the freezing temperature of water because of the high salt content Um, And so maybe that is also contributing to the thawing of what we thought was permafrost because it's actually not solid all the way down. Yeah, it's a weird, I mean, it's a weird like kind of atmosphere to be looking at it all. Uh, No pun intended, of course, Um, because the everything is changing so rapidly and it's happening in this area where there's like there's not people around, you know. Just like a lot the, of scientists, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they even like the 2014 crater, uh, like how did they find it? It was like somebody was just flying a flying plane over. with over. A, Yeah, with a helicopter and they saw it and they're like, whoa. And then they went back and looked at some satellite imagery from like the month before and they noticed that it wasn't there. So like, oh, this must have like happened in the last 30 days. A giant, yeah. a giant crater exploded. It was, and that's the other thing is like, at first, they're like, well, maybe this is an impactor from some space rock that came. and But there's no, the, the way the crater is formed, it's not any kind of angular impact with the Earth. There's no uh, evidence of any kind of impacting uh, body. Um, and once they get into it, then you see that it's not a sinkhole either because... When you look at the satellite images, you see that there's actually been an elevation change in the surrounding area and the like it bubbled up. And now there's uh, there's part of what was inside the crater is now all scattered around the crater. Um, So something actually exploded out. And, uh, that's, that's been the sort of the interesting thing to discover. And now they're, they have like evidence of actually seeing these things explode because they're happening more and more frequently, but it's, uh, these, because things are melting in the permafrost, um, you having higher and higher concentrations of methane being released under the now thawed soil. And so what happens is as the soil thaws, it starts to bubble up like a hill over a few years and so the elevation of that soil and that bubble part rises and rises and rises, sort of like a mini volcano. And then the pressure just reaches too much and the ground bursts open just like your face does when you pop a zit. And this huge amount of methane is released into the atmosphere. And all of the the subsoil and things all get rained around in a circular fashion around the crater. And these things explode so violently in such a vertical pattern that the walls are at such steep, like one-to-one slopes of these craters that they don't last in these perfect crater shapes for long. Um, 
you know, in a few months time over rain and dip, and more of the soil melting and things, the walls of these craters like erode and fall in like landslides on top of themselves and then eventually turn into what looked like just a bunch of lakes. And you can't even like see what the original crater was. Now you just see sort of like a pond like surface around and maybe at the center at one end of the of the little lake is where the crater was from the original methane explosion. Yeah, and those explosions can push like certain rocks. I think they found one of them 900 meters away from yeah. the crater, which <laughs> sounds terrifying. Yeah, because um, it's and it's not like uh, lava. It's not uh, pyroclastic flows or uh, it, things like you would see in a volcano. Is just a, a gas. It's a burp. It's a <laughs> it's a it's a gas bubble popping. Yeah. The, the thing about this, though, it, like, reminds me of when we were talking about the Voyager, um, like, expeditions or whatever, mm. you're, the space mission, and, like, whenever you look at those other planets, you have to remember, like, that's an entire planet. Like, it's, yeah. it's not just one thing that you can be like, oh, yeah, there's the north and the south and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah when was the last time you as a human walked from the north to the south so just like imagine the amount of land mass that there is that these things are happening and now like there's i think there's one scientist um in the nova show that she was like i can't think of any other geological thing that has happened during humans lifetimes that we didn't already know could happen right <laughs> but like these are like a new thing that they are just like what <laughs> like, yeah. okay so i guess now we got to deal with this yeah um, it's, it's totally it's a totally sort of new discovery of geology in a way that uh that hasn't been experienced before or hasn't been experienced in centuries <laughs> where we're just like wow look at this new process yeah so the the thawing of the permafrost is, I mean, a concern, I guess, foremost, like that there's, there's different things that happen with the thawing of the permafrost and it, it sort of ends up relating to the, the Arctic craters, but the thawing itself is so strange because as it begins to thaw, it like starts to um indent as the ground beneath it thaws and softens and everything like that mm -hmm. so you're finding these areas where there's like forests that the permafrost has started to thaw and over the course of like five years the forest has sunk like yeah the trees are all feet. folded on in on each other yeah 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 it looks like like you had like a bunch of trees glued to a trampoline and then you pulled the trampoline down from below they're all like folding in on each other. It's like a, like a saw. What do they call it? The not oh the drunken forest. Yeah, yeah all the yeah. trees look drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like screwing up their roots too. Like they're not even like the trees are also all bent because I think mm -hmm. they're not getting the proper soil like rooting. Um. So that's interesting, um, but what that results in is. The more it bends like that, the more surface area is exposed of permafrost on the rim and the edges, which then causes that permafrost to begin melting at a faster rate mm -hmm. because it's exposed to the environment. 
much more. So not only does that start to run away, the divots also begin to collect water from rain or, um, you know, uh, other sources or partly melted partly of the melting ice turns into yeah, the yeah, water yeah. that's at the bottom of the divots and one thing we all should hopefully remember from chemistry class is uh, water is warmer than ice mm-hmm. so that's adding so much more heat to permafrost like that remaining layer that's there and it just speeds up the thawing process and melting so i mean this is like going back to last week this is another positive feedback loop where the thing that is the result of whatever action happens is then causing that action to happen more, which is then resulting in more of it. Mm -hmm. So it's just starting to get to this runaway point where some scientists are like already saying, yeah, it's, it's already past the point of no return because it took tens of thousands of years for all of that ice to be put into the earth for the earth to be cold enough for it to go into there so it'll take tens of thousands more years for it to go back to that and humans <laughs> cannot act on that scale right right and the then the the other little silver lining of uh this this uh this huge thick layer of permafrost that we've all just thought is always going to be there uh the other thing that it does is it kind of caps all the other carbon stores from way way longer prehistoric times like back what what we thought were permanent carbon stores and i'm not talking about oil i'm talking like the actual carbon stores of the decomposed matter from around when the dinosaurs were and there's pockets of that methane that exist way deep beneath the permafrost and so there's a theory that it's not just the methane release from the biodegradable matter that is now thawing in the permafrost. There's these much more concentrated pockets of methane that are much deeper in the earth that are much older. And the ice has been serving as a cap to having any of those released. And once you start thawing that ice out, then you start to release channels that can get all the way to that deep permanently stored methane that we thought could never get released into the atmosphere and now that is what's possibly causing these craters because it's more you need a big concentration so maybe more than a concentration you get just from microbes animating and um digesting a bunch of the now thawed old plants and biologic matter that is in the permafrost yeah that was that was my um rabbit hole is the the Nova episode spent a lot of time talking about permafrost before revealing like the fossil methane and mm-hmm. fossil carbon. But the the permafrost like carbon store is pretty nuts um, because the way that permafrost formed, um, and I don't have I didn't find like the full history on it, but essentially back when it was you know getting real chilly out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there would be like, you know, segments of earth, uh, that would just freeze, like almost flash frozen. So before like grasses or anything like that could start to decompose, uh, it just totally froze. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this massive amount of organic life 
that is still in this layer of permafrost. There's like a cave that they go into in, I want to say Alaska, uh, that like Fox cave. Yeah, yeah. Where my friend Tom Douglas uh, went into. <laughs> New friend. And <laughs> and uh, it like, he, he showed there was like a piece of earth where somehow it had like kind of fallen off of a, they proposed this theory that it had fallen off of this cliff and fallen over onto like a water bed and that froze. So you've got grass that's like just hanging down. Yeah. Yeah. Like into this uh, cave. And my, my tangent I got off from this was when he walked by and was like, Oh yeah. And look, there's a woolly mammoth tusk just sticking out of the wall. Let's just keep walking. And I was like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> and then, I was impressed too because he just grabbed it with his hand. Yeah. I, I, I'd have thought they'd be like, nope, gloves only. <laughs> so there is like a huge like paleoarchaeology field that is just about excavating these prehistoric creatures that are now being revealed in perfect preserved condition because the permafrost is thawing. And, like, it's a really cool field because you're getting, like, these animals that are 10,000 to, like, 75,000 years old. And some of them are absolutely pristine. Like, they found these lion cubs in Siberia that look like they were still in the den just sleeping with their mom. And their fur is soft and the contents of their stomach still have their mother's milk in them. And, like, if you, you see it on, like, the lab table and it looks like a living, breathing lion cub that's just laying there taking a nap you couldn't you wouldn't be able to tell that it's dead and it's been dead for twenty eight thousand years um so there's a lot of cool stuff that is being discovered one because we can tell all of those things from these very preserved specimens but also it tells a lot about like the herbivores and the large megafauna that was around at the time um, and how they really contributed to the diversity of the plant life um, that was around in the Arctic and sort of really telling a bigger story about the extinction event that led these creatures that survived like seven ice ages. The one they went extinct in was the last one, and that's the exact coinciding time when humans showed up on the map to where they lived. So... You know, there have been lots of theories of, like we talked about before with extinctions, oh, it's a climate thing, oh, they ran out of food, oh, you know, maybe there was a fire disaster or something else. But usually when it comes to these types of extinction things, it's never one thing. And what they're finding in the modeling of these habitats, now that they know a lot more about the environment as far as the vegetation and what people, what uh, different animals were eating, they know now that it doesn't take very much hunting from humans to cause a, a, a cascading event that wipes out the entire population. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the biodiversity. And when you wipe out a certain part of a species, um, you eliminate one of the angles that the environment has to diversify. And so what they think is that humans came and they started taking out some of the megafauna that maybe weren't scared of the humans or that were very easy to hunt. And those things 
played a big part in the food chain for the different predator arrangements around the area, which then put all of those other predators in danger. But then two, the, uh, the herbivores that were hunted, they, just their nature of the types of food they ate also preserved a much more diversified um, plant life for, for all animals to eat in the, in the Arctic areas. And when you take away those animals, they no longer are carrying the seeds around on their bodies. They're no longer rummaging around in the mud and causing, you know, the population of certain plants to move from one place to another. They're no longer eating certain things and causing um, environmental changes in those plants to either protect themselves from being eaten or, you know, adapting to different ways so that they can stay alive at different times when the animals aren't eating them so that they can preserve themselves. And once you take away, it doesn't take very much to just remove that one maybe block that's at the bottom of the tower and then all of a sudden the whole tower falls down. So that's that's sort of the interesting stuff that is coming out of this thawing of the permafrost. But it is a uh, it is sort of a sad thing that we can find all this information, but the we have to find it by living through a climate disaster in order to get, gain this knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not many future generations we can give this knowledge to afterwards either. Right, right. <laughs> so it's so it's cool from an archaeological standpoint, but at the same time, every time you're doing you're reading any of the cool stuff, like you can't help but be like, the only reason we know any of this cool stuff is because the whole planet's on fire. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's pretty interesting. Like the so the and the amount of this is where it gets. Um, tied into like the climate and why it's bad for the permafrost to thaw not getting yet to like the fossil methane but the amount of carbon that is stored in all of this organic material is massive in permafrost permafrost i mean it's theorized that it goes that it's like a mile deep into the earth Mm -hmm. in like some parts and it covers one quarter of the land mass of north uh, of the northern hemisphere um so i did like a quick math and if you take into account that it's a mile deep um and i rounded off some other numbers it's like nine million cubic miles of of permafrost yeah uh which is massive um and the when you have all of this organic matter in there, that means that, uh, well, because it flash froze, essentially, it froze so quickly, none of the stuff decomposed. So you didn't have this slow release of carbon back into the, um, you know, carbon cycle where carbon goes, you know, turns into, say, CO2, and then plants breathe it in, and then they turn it into leaves or fruit or whatever mm-hmm. like and some gets captured the in the ocean and some gets captured right. in the rocks and whatever yeah the the way that you know atoms work is it's it's not like you eat some sugar which has a bunch of carbon in it and then it's like destroyed it's only <laughs> broken down into other things and then put back together in other things that then use carbon mm-hmm. you know that's like the conservation of energy (laughs) so that's like that's why that's an important rule in like biology and stuff 
So this carbon goes somewhere. It doesn't just disappear, but it's been frozen in this spot for so long. And now that it's warming up, it it's reaching a temperature where microbes can begin to break it down. And they break it down and release it as things like CO2 or methane. And those then go up into the atmosphere and warm up uh, the earth mm-hmm. because of the greenhouse effect. So, And we've talked about the differences between CO2 and methane, just to recap it real quick. CO2 hangs around in the atmosphere a lot longer, so it's not as damaging as a molecule of methane is, but it is it hangs around a lot longer. Methane doesn't hang around nearly as long, but it is about 22 times worse at warming the planet than CO2 is. Well, I've got, I even did some more looking at uh, like the, the difference between carbon dioxide and methane. And the concentration in the atmosphere for carbon dioxide is, it's difficult because you can either judge by volume or you can judge by mass. Um, and by volume, it's about, uh, carbon dioxide is about 400 parts per million, um, which makes up nine to 26% of like the global warming aspect of it. Um, and then the, uh, methane is 1.8 parts per million. Uh, but the, the the thing with like methane uh, compared to carbon dioxide carbon dioxide it's one carbon and two oxygens oxygens are pretty heavy molecules mm-hmm. uh compared to hydrogen especially and methane is one carbon and four hydrogens um so if you weigh it by mass like the amount of heat that is retained uh compared to how massive those molecules are Methane is 84 times more powerful. Okay, wow. <laughs> at trapping heat <laughs> over a 20-year period. Um, and it accounts for 105 times the effect when you uh, add in aerosols. Okay. So like aerosolized particles in the air. Now, as you mentioned, methane only lasts like around 12 years in the atmosphere. But methane oxidizes with um oh radicals that's like an oxygen with a hydrogen but the oxygen has an extra electron um so it's way more reactive methane oxidizes with that to form co2 so it's not even like the methane just then goes out into space which i was thinking i was like oh okay at least it's yeah if it's got all this hydrogen around it maybe it's just floating out into space (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it actually it it turns into co2 Um, And then it also reacts and contributes to ozone formation in the troposphere. Mm. And ozone, we have it in like, I believe the stratosphere, right? I think that's right. If I remember my my 90s Captain Planet correctly. Right. (laughs) Um, And if you remember like chlorofluorocarbons, the CFCs that that were in hairspray and everything, Punching a hole in the ozone layer. Exactly. They would um, break up the layer of ozone, and ozone is good for keeping like radiation and stuff out at that highest level. Ozone is really good at also trapping heat. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but at that highest level, it's fine because it's really cold up there. And like, you know, the amount of radiation that gets up there is it's not getting pushed back down as much and everything. Well, that methane is then causing ozone to form in lower layers where it is warmer and has the possibility to radiate heat back out. So we're just making another blanket. We just added another blanket. Yeah. So like even the things that methane turns into are still warming the planet. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting. I was like, how do they even trap heat? And it's just because like water is the biggest contributor to that's the biggest greenhouse gas. Um, But it doesn't it's just mostly because of the volume, like the amount of water that's Mm -hmm. in the atmosphere. Um, Comparatively, like the way that the molecule is structured for water whenever radiation hits it, like the heat coming off of the earth, it just like, you know, wiggles a little bit. It has a very small, narrow amount of radiation that it can absorb. Methane has a pretty big, like, sections yeah, of radiation. Yeah, its cross-section is larger. But it can also, like, the way that the molecules vibrate whenever they get hit with that is so massive uh, because of the structure. Like, the hydrogens and stuff, it's like... It's like plucking a rubber band or something. Mm. Like it just bounces around. So that's why the amplitude of heat coming back off of it is so high. Um, and it also doesn't absorb the same types of radiation as uh, any of the other um, greenhouse gases. So it's also not like, okay, well, at least CO2 doesn't take as much heat. No, it's like different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. takes a different type of heat. Um. So methane is like, again, uh, pretty insane in the atmosphere. But whenever you start looking at those greenhouse gases, it gets really confusing. And this is the part where I, um, I spent two hours on Tuesday and then like another, I don't know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes on Wednesday losing my mind uh, because- But now you're a climate scientist. Now I'm a climate scientist. I have my degree in everything. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's, it's so confusing. So in, in the Nova show, uh, my, my friend talk, Dr. Tom Douglas, uh, he mentioned that in the permafrost, there is, uh, 1,400 billion tons, metric tons of carbon, um, so I don't know why like, that's easier to say than 1.4 trillion metric tons. I don't know but either. I, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> People um, can't visualize a trillion of something. That's why we have to say 1,400 billion. They can always visualize <laughs> 1,400 billion of something. There's no trillionaires. There are billionaires. Yeah, so I there guess you go. It makes... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... You have this much, but then he makes this like very interesting comment that he says, that's twice the amount of carbon, that's almost twice the amount of carbon as there is in the atmosphere. And then that makes you say, uh-oh, because <laughs> right. that's a lot of carbon. Well, later on in Nova, um, they mentioned how pre-industrial times there was... um 200 gigatons of carbon in the atmosphere and a gigaton is 1 billion tons. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
he's hold on. No, I'm sorry. They said 2000, 2000 yeah, gigatons. <laughs> um, so they said 2000 gigatons. So that's, that's 2 trillion. Mm-hmm. And then from industrialization, humans have added at least another 1000 gigatons. Yeah. So another trillion. So, so we're up to 3 fo- trillion. If you're not, following along at home. Not seven, <laughs> not 750 or 800 billion. Right. Um, and they're, t- well, I'm sorry, they, they didn't say carbon. They said uh, 3,000 gigatons of uh, greenhouse gases, right. I suppose. Uh, greenhouse carbon. Right. And so I start doing a little math in my head, and I say, wait a second. You just said 1.5 in the ground is twice the amount as is in the atmosphere, which you just said. Climate is science three. is a hoax. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not even get into how they're trying to make me believe the earth is round, okay? <laughs> um, so I, I was like losing my mind because I'm like, why does it say this? And I'm like, okay, well, maybe he just, maybe they made a weird edit or something or like he misspoke or, you know, twice half. Yeah, I he said twice what he meant to say half. Yeah. Right. And they published it. Yeah. So then I Google, um, you know, how much is in permafrost and how much is in the atmosphere. And I find this Scientific American article and it says there's 1.5 trillion uh, tons in of carbon in permafrost, which is twice the amount as is in the atmosphere. <laughs> so doubling down. <laughs> I start to lose it. I'm texting Josh. He's worried. He's texting Miho, telling her to like take devices away from me. He's worried about my safety. <laughs> Put me in a soft room. And so it I'm I mean, I was like losing my mind because I'm like, You're about somewhere to go along Q. the way. You were on your way. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody must have said twice when they meant half and it's just been repeated as one of those things because that happens in science like or i none of this is making sense so then i start googling what is the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere well as we mentioned a few minutes ago the metric they use is parts per million Mm -hmm. if you're like well how many tons what is the mass of carbon in the atmosphere the only time they use tons is when they're talking about global emissions mm-hmm. and the annual emissions. And I'm not about to do, okay, well, there's been this much emissions over this time and this graph. Like, I don't want calculus right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at half. Just okay? give me the algebra. Just I just wanted to do the quick algebra equation that shows me what the correct answer is. Right. So then I was like, okay, fine. Um, I used to do math. I can still pull it out of my back pocket if I need to. So let's do a little conversion. So I find how massive is the atmosphere? And it is uh, 5.15, let's see, million, billion, trillion. Wait, millions, billions, trillions. Whatever's above trillion, it's 5,150 of that. Is it quadrillion? Quadrillion, yeah. So it's five quintillion kilograms. <laughs> yeah, just that's why you just say the number of zeros with 18 zeros. Or whatever. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, then I was like, okay, well, I know that carbon dioxide is 630 parts per million by mass in the atmosphere. So then I take that times 630, divide by 1 million to get the parts per million. So then I find that there's this many kilograms of carbon 
in the atmosphere. The number's looking a little scary because it's 3.24. Yep. It's not 750. <laughs> so then uh, I convert the kilograms to metric tons, which, little known fact, um, 1,000 kilograms is one metric ton. Yep. So that makes it simple. Metric system works. <laughs> then we find it is 3 trillion. Cheapy. This is my big reveal. <laughs> it is, I'm getting worked up, I guess. <laughs> it is uh, 3 trillion 200 metric tons. Three, yeah. 3.2 trillion metric tons go. of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So, what is going on? Well, after uh, going on Twitter and adding Nova and Scientific American and then finding a climate scientist that's active on Twitter and then going back on Nova and finding the name of Dr. Tom Douglas, they don't even mention where he works. So I have to do a lot of Googling and I find his email address, his work email address, and I email him <laughs> to ask where these figures are coming from. <laughs> Which I'm sure um, he appreciates. Like, I'm sure he gets those emails all the time. He's like, hey, climate scientist, where the <laughs> fuck you get your figures from? <laughs> the only reason I didn't feel bad, and I'm not going to tell everyone like his email address or where he even works, um, but it's not an easy email to find. It's not like available on Google. I have my own methods. Um, and... So I was hoping that he wasn't going to, I was expecting him to not reply. Um, but then when I did get a reply, I was like, okay, well, I, I saw his email come in and I was like, oh, great. He's going to be like, you moron. Like here, you know, so the point is I, I wasn't actually thinking everyone was spreading like <laughs> misinformation or misquoting whatever. Wait, wait, you weren't, you weren't trying to be a climate denialist. You were just try, trying to hold people accountable. Yeah, exactly. This is what I wanted people to do to Joe Biden, but <laughs> apparently no one can find out where he lives. Um, so I was really just hoping somebody would explain where, because I, I knew, like I've taken chemistry, right? I've done all of this stuff. It's just been years since I've like cared about um, molecules, mm -hmm. but I was like, there's got to be one other calculation that I'm missing because you wouldn't have these people, these scientists saying that it's twice. Or yeah, you know? and ending up being off by like a factor of four because they're messing exactly. up twice in half. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, or, you know, it. the thought crossed my mind, maybe I'm going to be on the cover of Time Magazine, Boy Wonder Solves Climate. <laughs> Methane debunks, and permafrost, not a big deal. climate science. Uh, so anyways. You're going to be um, on Tucker Carlson next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that what a turn that would be. <laughs> so I'm going to be with the trucker protest in Canada next week. Uh, so the, the thing is, uh, the climate scientist on Twitter responded to me first, and she didn't even... Like she gave me the answer without, she was like, did you think about this? But here's the answer to your question. And the answer to my question was not what I needed. I needed that first part. And she mentioned, did you multiply carbon dioxide by 12 over 44, which is 
the mass that carbon is, carbon's mass is 12, and 44 is the mass of carbon dioxide, so it, that includes the two other oxygens. Denominators and, are important. Yes, very important. Good, I learned my lesson. <laughs> and multiplying the metric tons of carbon dioxide by that number then comes out to about 800 billion tons, which is roughly half, half of 1.5 trillion. Yeah. So here's where I then got the email from uh, Dr. Douglas. And after like a little, like he replied and then I replied and then he sent me a few things. He sent me a few papers on like the original, uh, he sent me like the, the, not the paper, but no, the long like form. The, so you can put it into your search bar and it'll pull up just that paper and you don't right, have to yeah. go research it. And, um, which is very nice of him. Uh, and I went to go look at like the original papers deciding how much carbon is in permafrost. Um, and then I think he sent another one that was like, here's like the updated numbers of, of stuff. Um, so I appreciate, I didn't even mention like the climate scientist on, uh, Twitter. Um, see, I'm look at me. I am going to be on Tucker Carlson only caring about the mail that responded to me. Um, Oh Jesus. Anyways. So the, those original papers that he shared, um, this is going to bug me. Her, her name is Catherine. Hey, ho H a Y H O E. Very nice. Thank you, professor Catherine. Catherine, ha ho. Um, so the thing with these papers and the thing that's very confusing about climate science and maybe this trips other people up, it obviously tripped me up. Um, even in this original paper, it says uh, carbon is stored in permafrost. Um, it's like five gigatons of carbon in permafrost mostly as carbon dioxide. Like even in those papers, they interchange carbon with like greenhouse gases or carbon dioxide or whatever. So it gets really confusing on like when you're starting to look at the scientific levels, because for whatever reason, like it's one of those things, it's kind of like you're, you know, like sneezing, your body doesn't come up with this plan to do this stuff. Like it just happened to be something beneficial. Carbon isn't itself anything that is causing global warming. Right, right. It's not just, it just like happens. we could we could uh, shovel up this bad bit of carbon and throw it into space, and we'd finally get <laughs> we'd finally yeah, yeah. be free of this pest. <laughs> it is just the most versatile Lego on yeah. the periodic table to then fit other things to, and it has an ability to like vibrate in a more impactful way so that was my i had to just finally let that let that all out um but it was <laughs> god, it was a good was it was a good chemistry lesson though i learned a lot yesterday in this in this back and forth exchange as i was trying to research <laughs> to help you figure out where you were where to get the math correct from i was like no because I mean, it makes sense to me just like from a colloquial standpoint, but yeah, when we're talking about greenhouse gas and like the total capacity of the atmosphere, yeah, it doesn't make sense. But yeah, yeah. yeah. And so and then like you were even like, well, maybe like 
the total amount that has gone in there. They're like they're talking about a different total amount than what is actually currently there. Yeah, I was thinking maybe this is a a rate problem or they're talking about over a certain duration of time, like in a year of release, it would be this much. But then over the entire history of humanity, it's this much. Because that's the other thing that messes all these calculations up is if you're talking about like, oh, well, the uh, the industrial complex of the globe will emit this much in a year. It's tough to then convert that metric into the total metrics of, oh, this is what the capacity of the atmosphere has to store. If we get too much in the atmosphere, then this kicks off this positive feedback loop that we can't come back from. So does that mean that everyone has to reduce by X numbers per year going forward? Or do we have like a decade? Like how, how do we how do we approach this when you start to add duration and time to the equation? Yeah, and <laughs> now that we've talked about these numbers so much in these massive numbers, I think it's a good time to point out that scientists are estimating we could budget for a maximum of 460 billion tons of CO2 release. Yeah, that's um, that's what we've got left to keep it under two degrees. <laughs> yeah, and... That's uh, all we you, got left. <laughs> we can only you, emit this much more. <laughs> adding in the mass of methane that we would be allowed, because remember, it's 84 times more powerful by mass. That's only 5 billion tons of methane. And when you're talking about 1.5 trillion tons of carbon in permafrost it gets scary and then um as you mentioned earlier that's not even the most like worrying part of the arctic melting like the this fossil methane and fossil carbon (laughs) is a big deal Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta have something that gets you enough pressure to actually explode the surface of the planet to release large amounts of gas. Um, and uh, I, the the telling part of when they tell you the energy budget that we have left, and then they tell you that um, no current prediction models for climate change that are being used on a government level for decision based policy making when it comes to how to approach this none of them have included in their equation the factor for permafrost belt or methane release as a result of these things so everything that we've talked about for you know the last two decades and everything that's been attempted in the paris accords from five years ago and all of that stuff none of it accounted for this (laughs) which is just like straight no nobody thought this could be something to be concerned with or at least something that would be concerned this this quickly (laughs) yeah yeah and you know methane like goes up into the atmosphere all the time um so because of its short life cycle uh, it hasn't really been that big of a concern, but whenever you're talking about, like if you just have an unusually warm summer in in the Arctic, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you're going to have a massive plume of methane go up. Or, you know, you have, like there's, I forget the company, but out here in California, there's like a natural gas company that 
um, for years has just had like like busted pipes and stuff. So methane is just spewing out of it at all times. But like the state, because they get paid by these companies, don't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Like you have all of these man-made sources that are releasing tons of methane which is really bad like every then everyone's have, gas stove in their house it run it works off methane and it leaks methane every time you use it so one it's yeah. not good for your kids or you and your house or your brain health which has come out but like almost like almost all the houses have these gas stoves <laughs> yeah so. yeah i mean and it's uh like it's not like it's just a U.S. thing. Like in Japan, pretty much everywhere is gas stoves. Yeah, which is insane. Europe is because all, they have yeah. earthquakes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like massive earthquakes. Um, but yeah, so it's it's like just these plumes and stuff. And the I found it really interesting when they were looking at like the Easy River, which I don't know if you had closed captioning on. I did not expect it to be spelled E S I E H. Yeah, yeah, it's it's easy lake, but it's I guess it's easy from an uh, old uh, 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 native Alaskan terminology or something. Not our term for easy. Yeah, I was like, oh, I guess this is a very easy lake to <laughs> to get to or something. Man, you got the only thing I was thinking during that was like, what must it smell like? Uh, see, but methane is odorless, so that's also like the the thing. Like, it's methane. Like a lot of people think methane has this smell, but it, that's yeah, because only... it's not. It's not. I guess it's not associated with like sulfur dioxide or something uh, uh, with it. But it's got to smell weird because like the methane that was coming out, they did. So they did like a sonar survey of the of the or ultrasound survey of the bottom of the lake, and they found because this lake is like bubbling. Yeah, like. Like a, like it looks like a jacuzzi. <laughs> and that guy is very brave to be scuba diving in that. Wait, look, he's snorkeling. He's not even oh, yeah. scuba diving. He's just taking deep breaths and then like going along the bottom with his hands. He's not even yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> Which is gross. <laughs> but yeah, he, so they found with this ultrasound that there's a divot in the middle of this lake that's like 50 feet deep. Then they use this other uh, technology ground penetrating know, radar nova paid for by mr coke uh, <laughs> has to plug the u.s military the good one uh, right <laughs> sure the good coke. Um, i'm sure he's just a swell fella um so they use this like little thing and they can survey even deeper and it's got under it a chimney so from the permafrost melting it is causing a semi-permeable chimney all the way down to that fossil methane that's been there for millions of years. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, because they were like, yeah, we tested it and it's really old methane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it must, I don't know, it's got to smell weird because there's got to be other compounds with it. And like right? the guy in the permafrost cave says it smells like... Uh like a compost pile or very, uh, yeah, yeah. very earthy sort of uh, decom- decomposition smell down there because the plant matter that's now being thawed and then uh, digested by the microbes. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's a whole weird system. And just considering that there's now 
you know, I mean, I, I can't, I don't think I actually looked up the amount of carbon that is in like this fossil carbon store. Uh, actually, no, they, I think they mentioned it. It's also like 1.5 trillion mm-hmm. giga or 1.5 trillion. Tons. And that's a lot tougher for them to know right now because it's yeah. so deep and it's sort of like knowing where the hot spots of the pockets of lava are under Yellowstone or something. Like you have, it's it's tough to know all of that information, especially when um, it's only been this this phenomenon's only been investigated for like six years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It, the whole thing is just very unnerving because. <laughs> They're like, yeah, there's this whole new thing that the earth can do and it's killing us faster. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the the thing we haven't even talked about yet and which I, I is the thing that came, comes up in my mind when I've always thought about permafrost, way less about the climate change aspect because I remember it was some like history channel story from... I don't know. This has to be like over a decade ago, but it's a story about like a kid in Siberia who uh, got anthrax and they hadn't seen any like natural formations of anthrax anywhere for like a hundred years or something like that in the area. This is like around World War II or something. I'm trying to remember the details of the story. This is just to set up my point. But they found that it had come from a reindeer that had been frozen from like a hundred years before and the carcass had thawed and there was like a growth of anthrax inside its in inside of its intestine. And that the anthrax sort of reanimated after it thawed out. And so they knew, wow, this stuff can last for maybe 200 years frozen and come back and actually, and still harm people. Um, in addition to finding all these like perfectly preserved lions and woolly mammoths and all this awesome, you know, megafauna and plants and things, there are a lot of prehistoric bacteria and viruses and other microbes that are also being thawed in this permafrost and they reanimate. especially the bacteria now we haven't found necessarily a bacteria that makes us sick yet but if we have the evidence that lots of these bacteria can reanimate and not only reanimate but they just pick up their reproductive cycle wherever they left off from where they were frozen once they thaw out if ones that are not potentially harmful to us can certainly come back to life then i would think Ones that could be potentially harmful to us could certainly come back to life. And they found, you know, uh, in other small cases of this where you're um, testing the DNA of now thawed bodies of different people that had gone through in Alaska that had gone through the 1918 flu and their bodies had been frozen and now they thawed them out. They're still like remnants of that information inside of their dna and in animals there's still smallpox <laughs> and stuff inside yeah of yeah so uh the uh, the thing that always 
creeped me out about permafrost from back in the day when I used to think about it was, oh man, this is the perfect scenario for unleashing like a global pandemic. Like (laughs) (laughs) this will thaw out and like somebody scientist or whatever will be like studying this thing and like it'll cut open an animal and some microbe or bacteria will get in that person's like respiratory tract and then it'll start uh, a cascade of a pandemic events because it's a bacteria that we've never experienced before that has never experienced humans before. So it just wreaks havoc on us and we don't know how to stop it. Like that's the thing that I always thought about. So yeah, the, uh, obviously climate change part and the positive feedback loop, ter- terrible news, but bearing the lead kind of is also the, uh, the organic compounds of this and the biological nature of this and how that could either impact humans or plant life or other animals and maybe decimate those populations if certain microbes and viruses and things get released back into back into the live living world well and you're if you're also considering the global i don't know effect of climate change there might be more migration of people up north where it's at least more right. temperate temperatures and if you have people moving up there trying to grow things and keep food stocks or whatever because the middle band of the earth is just you know 150 degrees year round well then you might have a release of a virus that just runs rampant through corn mm-hmm. like cuz it never experienced corn yeah um and, you know, America is corn. America <laughs> runs on corn. We need that ethanol. That's the only thing we eat. And the, and the sugar. Just give me the corn. Yeah, exactly. Just syrup and the ethanol. That's all I need to live. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it is a, I don't know. It's one of those problems where you, uh, you know, you look at like all of this stuff and, and start to try to imagine, wow, that's like a, a really big problem. But then if you start to package all of the things together, like I wonder how many climate scientists, um, I'm sorry, fellow climate climate scientists, uh, look at the overall structure of what it is that they're researching. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, how the comprehensive, often- The comprehensive nature of it. Yeah, yeah. Like obviously you would know that this is going to affect this many people, but do you really put it into context that the melting of permafrost is going to make it where people are experiencing those levels of, you know, can't grow anything because there's, you know, maybe there's too much, I don't know, bad organic matter that's in the soil. Yeah. Like it's, it's cause I think isn't, I know Siberia is a pretty big swamp, but doesn't it also have pretty rich like nutrients I mean, if it's if most of it is peat, I would think it's incredibly rich in like nutrients and like fertilized ground and stuff like that. It's probably just very inhospitable to try to do anything with it. Uh, you know, yeah. as far as like planting and uh, trying to cultivate it agriculturally. <clears throat> but that's I mean, that's the other the other part of it is as the as the permafrost thaws there's a lot more access to a lot of these regions that used to be tundra and that you just couldn't Mm -hmm. do anything in. And you already have in the last five years, both Russia and Greenland making huge pushes to now be able to 
drill for fossil fuels in those now um, accessible regions of their countries because they used to be frozen tundra, but now the permafrost is melted enough to where they could access those areas in order to drill for natural gas or, or oil. And so that's happening all up there too, which probably isn't going to be a thing that helps the uh, positive feedback cycle. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like these areas are uninhabited, like in some parts. There is like that northernmost town in the U.S., the uh, Utkavik, mm-hmm. um, Alaska. There's like a town of, I don't think everyone there is like the native population, but I think a lot of people are. And they have, they depend on like whaling and fishing and hunting because they don't have the the guy that they interview he's like yeah we've got restaurants but we don't have like walmart like yeah. there's no place to buy stuff and it's not an agricultural hub either so it's not like you're <laughs> no. you're growing a bunch of wheat <laughs> right and so they've depended on these underground carved out of the permafrost freezers to keep food over winter like where like an they... entire whale carcass <laughs> <laughs> right i'm sure they carve it up beforehand yeah. <laughs> i would hope um but he was saying like you know he went down there in the winter to check on like the meat and it started turning green because it's warming up in these cellars that he's like we've been using these for generations yeah, these are natural and sub-zeros now, and now they're they're above freezing temperature and all of our all of our meat is molding <laughs> yeah so then they've got to use like deep freezers which uh i mean i'm hazarding a guess i didn't look up how accessible electricity is there but i would imagine okay yeah but then you know it's well what happens when that runs out like there's and then all of their houses too being built on the permafrost well it's softening up and so then it's starting to slump and like you just can't live in some of the houses now and they can't and like the idea of putting those houses on those massive sleds so they could slide them to like a different part of the ice whenever yeah. the permafrost starts to thaw underneath it i i guess i mean you got to get creative when you got to you know migrate due to climate change so you put a whole house on on big skis and you slide it around <laughs> God, but God, that sounds like such a beating. And he's like saying because the permafrost is melting, like the storm surge from the ocean is just eroding their beach at Yeah, yeah, it's undercutting the beach because the permafrost is under the beach and every wave that comes in undercuts that beach and underneath it, it just keeps thawing out the ice. So there's no actual solid thing for the beach to sit on anymore because the ice underneath the beach it was sitting on is now thawed out and, and being eaten away. Yeah, I mean, it's like there's <laughs> there's nothing to do about it, you know? No, yeah, it's, they can't like, uh, they they can't call a city council meeting and, <laughs> and vote against the melting permafrost. <laughs> yeah, it's, and, and you know, it's one of those things that it, it is all connected, but the people who are building the pipeline don't think one second about how this whole town is about to fall into the Arctic Ocean mm-hmm. because they're helping warm the planet. So these people are losing their like, you know, th- like the the person that they were talking to, he's like, you can come here and see like festivals and rituals that have happened for tens of thousands of years because this is, you know, if you're like 
buying into the theory of the Bering Strait, how people came mm-hmm. to North America and everything. Like this is like, you know, kind of the first people to come through. Um and so it's it's incredible that the amount of uh culture that is just suddenly being totally washed away from this thing that like nobody's grappling with. Yeah, and it's tough because I think everyone, like if you talk about from a global scale of information, everyone is so inundated already with climate information. Um, And this is just goes back to the sort of uncertainty principle that is true all the way through from big science to quantum mechanics. But the there there is no real such thing as 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 certainty and um the things that we don't know um or the things that we know we don't know um have a lot of potential to really affect our future perception on models and the and the impact of climate change or the impact of lots of things um so there is always the i guess knee-jerk reaction to say that oh well because this is all based on uncertainty then science is doesn't really know what it's talking about so and my scientists could be just as wrong as they are right so it's basically like 50 50 climate change is real or not right and i i think it's you know it goes back to the scientific literacy issue and um like it's it's just going to be always going to be tough when Everything, whether you're talking about pandemic science, whether you're talking about climate science, it's always going to be tough when there's new information on the horizon every day. And that stuff has to now be incorporated into the model. And you can never become convinced that the model you're working on today is the definitive model. (laughs) And you can never become convinced as the observer that okay, we got this, we finally got this problem completely cornered at all, from all angles. We fully understand what's going on here. That one's done. Let's move on to the next thing. It's more about just becoming increasingly comfortable with the idea of uncertainty and letting that sort of embolden you to figure out what the next step is rather than letting that be a defeatist way that you approach the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, there... (laughs) It is difficult to like look at at climate science and just really feel feel great about it, but that that's got to be the difficult part of doing any of that research because there's only so long that you can scream at people in charge who, uh, you know, right? Then say they're going to be the best climate president around, even though they already got an F for their climate approach, <laughs> and then they're but they're it's probably, still the be- probably still the best, probably still the best. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's the, I don't know, just the, the uncertainty issue is always going to be a thing f- that hangs over all of it. And when you come to stuff like climate science, if you think that you're going to be the climate scientist that gets into this to to find the good news, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be the one who researches and finds out, oh, wow, guess what, guys? I found the good news. It's It's actually all beneficial. 
um, you're, that's probably not going to happen. So uh, it is also a very uh, depressing sort of field of research. And if you want to follow it, I can I can totally understand like the the human nature reaction to just check out and bury your head in the sand on it and be like, well, there's nothing really I can do about it on an individual level. So why should I even worry about it? Because it's not going to make my life any better to worry about it. Um, but you know, then again, you're also an empathetic, compassionate human being who knows the plights of other human beings all around the planet and how this is going to affect them. So it's kind of hard to turn that off. Yeah, you would hope. Um, well, I mean, I guess the best thing we can do is, uh, just vote. (laughs) Yeah. Vote blue, no matter who. Yeah. The, the last, the last little bit I had was on the Nova uh, documentary. I thought one of the coolest things was when they were going around to the frozen lakes in Alaska and they would just punch a hole in through the ice above the God, lake so just scary. to see if there was any methane in there. And the lady just holds a torch over it to see if it lights. And that thing ignited so huge off that little bitty hole they punched in that lake. It looked like yeah. it set that guy on fire. <laughs> that was nuts. Like the like they poked it. She's she was like, okay, you poke it. And then if I hear, which is, it's amazing that this is like what scientists yes, th- do. This is, this I mean, is scientists. This is what, how it works. <laughs> yeah. She was like, you poke it. And if it sounds like there's gas coming out, I'm going to, which I don't think it's going to sound like that. Maybe you'll hear like a, like a opening of a soda can or something. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. But she had lit it and it was already on fire. There was flame right there and the guy was like oh that means i should poke it again (laughs) and yeah then it just (laughs) he thought he was on fire he thought his eyebrows had burned off (laughs) i mean he said it got him and then he's like what's that burning smell (laughs) am i on fire Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, I, I would like that science expedition if I'm just, let's find out which um, lakes are active with methane. Let's go around here, punch some holes in the ice, see which ones cause a flame. Did did you have that in a high school, like chemistry class where they would do the Bunsen burner and put like a like soap bubble? No. They'd make a soap bubble of methane. Uh-uh. Um, and then uh, had like a, a candle on a stick and touch it to the thing and then they're just oh like a like a big like a big flash fire of the of the soap bubble going up yeah yeah that's cool um we mostly played with flash paper in my high school science class um i don't think i know is that just the stuff that burns really fast yeah 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 we are as our um end of the year present from our science teacher he gave us a bunch of what looked like real money and we were like, oh, my God, he's giving us each like a stack of $50 in ones, but they're actually flash paper money. And so first he like he like showed us a stack of it. And then he's like, oh, here. And then he lit it on fire right before he handed it to you. And it all just disappeared before it was able to go in your hand. <laughs> uh, it was a good lesson. <laughs> Back when fire was just, you know part of a little trick well yeah we did a lot of fire stuff in science class the um turning matches into like tomahawk cruise missiles where you you make a little stand for the match so it's like at an angle but the head of the match is like where the rocket booster would be and you have like a a electric 
uh, cable that's running along the base of your little paper clip. So when you send a charge through it, it'll ignite the tip of that strike anywhere match. And then the match shoots off like a, like a rocket because the, the fuel is at the base of the, you know, the tip of the match. And since you have it upside down, it goes. I've never seen that before. Science class. (laughs) And we also, we also, uh, you know, like dissected a bunch of feral cats and stuff. I don't know. A lot of dissections. <laughs> feral cats. Or, uh, yeah. You mean fetal fetal, fetal cats? cats. <laughs> fetal cats. Yes. All right, Josh, your turn to go in the alley. <laughs> <laughs> find find one real, real quick. Uh, yeah. Here's some flash paper to kill it with. <laughs> Take the hammer. <laughs> yeah. The fetal cats, fetal pigs, salamanders, newts. I don't know. We did a lot of dissections. The weirdest dissection I did was a shark. Ah. In in college. Did you see the Sydney shark attack? No, but those happen all the time. Did you hear about it? Don't they? No. It's the first uh, deadly shark attack in 60 years. The great white just chopped a swimmer right in half. Just right For in real? half. Yeah, it's real. He's a guy who was a, he wasn't a surfer. He was a diver and he was training for some sort of open sea swim that they do down there in South Africa or uh-huh. in Sydney. And um, he uh, was swimming and like there's people that are fishing on the cliff looking down and they see it happen and the guy's filming it. So there's one pass and the shark gets him and he's trying to swim away and then the shark circles back around and just like takes him right in half at the torso. How far out was he? Um, I couldn't tell. He's pretty far out. It's like a deep, a deep part of the bay. Like there's like a little beach, and then you enter the water, and you go uh-huh. around to the left where there's a big cliffside, and it gets real deep. And that's where like a lot of the open water swimmers, I guess, do a track to go on their open water swims. And so he was just swimming. And I don't know. It was a great white. They said it was at least four and a half meters. So I guess that's almost 15 feet. Jeez. I mean, why would it even? That's, ugh. No, thank you. <laughs> well, and it's like uh, the, when you were showing me that drone video from a few months ago about how many great white sharks are just hanging out right off the shallows in California that people just never knew because we didn't have drones that were flying over all the time. And now they're like, oh, wow, look at all these great white sharks are just chilling while people are surfing all around them they never knew about it yeah i mean it i i like always look down at the water when i'm surfing and like just kind of sitting there and uh man it it's it's freaky because i usually like i don't like to be near people too much because i'm not that good so like i don't want to get in their way mm-hmm. or take up you know uh space but then I'm just like, does that, am I looking, you know, like easy pickings to a shark? Yeah. uh, You know, we got plenty of sharks out here though, but they're, they're smaller sharks. They're not always like, but you got those fucking asshole Makos and bulls. Yeah. I mean, I think, aren't there like tiger sharks out here? I don't know. The only time there might be the tiger sharks I've seen were in Hawaii. There was a big ass tiger shark off Shipwreck's Beak in, Ka- in Kauai one year, just hanging out in the shallows. Ugh. Well, 
Uh, it rained Tuesday, so I won't be going out there this week. I'll forget about <laughs> oh, it. Oh, yeah, that was week. the other thing. He was kind of swimming in uh, the late afternoon hours. But he was like a like a professional diver for like marine wildlife. He took like footage of dolphins and whales and sharks underwater all the time. So I don't know if maybe that gave him like a false sense of security or if he was just like, I swim here all the time. Every The animals are always pretty chill. And who knows if like, because usually like a shark, even in a shark attack is just like taking a curiosity bite and then he swims away, not like multiple passes and then bites you in half. (laughs) That's why it's the first death in like 60 years. In Australia or of any shark attack? I think they said it was the first shark attack in in Australia death in 60 years or in Sydney in 60 years. Well... Not good. Yep. What can you do? Can't kill all the sharks. Stop stop, stop superheating the oceans and causing all the sharks to not know where to swim and staying close to coastal waters because they've lost all of their traditional pathways. Bringing it back to (laughs) climate change. All right, man. That's all I've got. Until next week. All righty. Bye.